The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, hawkish words from a usually dovish Fed governor. Lael Brainerd says inflation is much too high and balance sheet reduction has to be rapid. And the Fed may have to get even more aggressive. We'll look at the fallout as rates climb higher. And just a day after his stake in Twitter is disclosed, Elon Musk is now joining the board. Twitter shares soaring more than 30 percent just in those two sessions. We'll talk to an analyst who's downgrading the stock. And we'll get the trader's take on four major stocks, three buys and a bail. Can you guess where FedEx falls on the list today? But first, let's get a check on those markets. As we just mentioned, the Dow's down 91 points right now, only a quarter of a percent decline. The S&P 500, though, is down about three quarters of one percent. And the Nasdaq giving back its big gains yesterday and down 265 points or 1.3 percent. So stocks are breaking their winning streak so far in April with tech stocks, the Nasdaq in particular, tanking as rates rise. Let's take a look there. The 10-year yield firmly back above two and a half percent. Here's the two-year, 10-year spread. You see some curves steepening. In fact, it's back in positive territory as a result by about four basis points. Now, all of this comes why investors are anticipating less future bond buying by the Fed. Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainard says she's watching the yield curve uh, for increased signs of downside risks to activity. But, and this is where things get really interesting, she also says it's of paramount importance to get inflation down. Here's the key headline. Brainerd today also saying the Fed will begin to reduce the balance sheet at a rapid pace as soon as our May meeting. So what does rapid mean? What does that look like? That's exactly what the Treasury market is trying to digest today. Let's put it all in some perspective now with Aneta Markowska. She's the chief financial economist at Jefferies. Aneta, how, how big is rapid? How significant uh, balance sheet shrinkage do you anticipate? So LeBrainard said pretty explicitly uh, that they're going to be caps, uh, which implies balance sheet reduction through runoff. She did not mention asset sales at all. And so I think the base case is still that, you know, that they'll impose a cap of about $100 billion per month. That would be double uh, the caps that we uh, saw in the prior cycle. Um, but that means that they'll only be able to reduce the balance sheet by about a trillion per year. Right. So, yes, it's a lot faster in the last cycle, um, but I think that type of a reduction is already in the price. So if that's the case, then we really didn't learn much new from Brainard today. Yeah. So you think we could already be pricing in a trillion dollars of balance sheet reduction every year? We're about nine trillion right now. Uh, so maybe we're eight trillion by next year, seven trillion by the next year. The year after that, talk about the cap and the type of securities where we're seeing runoff. And even though this might be a status quo-y kind of announcement, we are seeing some steepening, what do they call it, bear steepening today. What do you read into that? So um, I think, you know, what Brainard might be talking about, because she does seem to be assuming quite a bit of tightening through the balance sheet this year. You know, we had pegged her for someone in the six to seven hike camp uh, prior to today. So either, and she said she wants policy to be basically neutral this year. So either she 
is a lot higher in terms of hikes than we anticipated, or she does expect uh, much more tightening to come through the balance sheet. It's possible that she's assuming that, you know, even though they shrink the balance sheet at a trillion dollar per year, that the market is just going to sort of front run the next several years of reduction. Uh, and she did point specifically at the mortgage market, where, where I think you could you could easily say that that's, in fact, what has happened. You know, the 30-year the mortgage rate is up something like 160, 170 basis points year to date. And that's clearly the market front running the idea that um, that that side of the Fed's portfolio will be running down. And that, I mean, look, if I'm the Fed, I might say this is exactly what I want to achieve. I want to slow the housing market so prices aren't up 20% a year. I want to steepen the curve. And investors have been debating how much is going to be rate hikes and how much is going to be balance sheet. I know you've been saying, Annetta, they might have to be more hawkish than what's already priced in. So what is the mix, you think, between more rate hikes, more balance sheet? So I think it's going to be a little bit of both. You know, I think for now, runoff is the the base case, right? With a hundred billion cap again, that gets you to about a trillion per year. Um, I, I do think asset sales are potentially on the table. Uh, I, I think the conditions for going to asset sales would be if if prepay speeds on the Fed's mortgage portfolio slow to to something like ten, you know, percent. That would mean that the mortgage portfolio runs down by about only twenty billion per month, and that's not Um, going to asset sales. Um, but, you know, but they're going to have to supplement that regardless by a pretty steep uh, rate hike trajectory as well. Yeah. And even though we have players in the mortgage market warning, there's not, you know, a big appetite to take down a lot of supply. So they're they're facing a conundrum. They could even face losses on the some sales of the MBS portfolio yeah. at the very short end. So there are many more chapters still to this story. Annetta, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Anetta Markowska with Jefferies. Now, tech stocks in particular are taking it on the chin here with the Nasdaq down 266 amid rising rates. And this after starting off the month with gains. Bob Pisani is down at the NYSE with more for us. Bob? Yeah, well, it was great uh, at the open. Now, Anetta said that uh, Brainerd's comments may have been status quo. The market is not taking it that way. We lost 50 points in the S&P 500 when she made those comments uh, a little after 10 o'clock Eastern time, as you see here. And we got right up against 4,600 again, Kelly, and failed. That is a real resistance level right now, technically. And yes, people are watching technicals very carefully. Let me just show you the sectors today here. Not surprisingly, interest rate sensitive sectors. Utilities, another history. Historic high. That's on the new high list. Uh, we also saw REITs doing very well. Defensive names like healthcare and consumer staples are holding up very well. They didn't really drop. It's tech that's been having the problem all day, uh, and that's been an issue for the markets here. The new high list is basically oil stocks uh, that we've seen for many years, uh, many days, Halliburton, Valero, as well as utilities like Con Ed and Southern. And that's basically it. It's those two sectors. In terms of what tech is doing, very interesting to watch this. We've had one heck of a tech rally in the last two and a half weeks. Everything has gone up. Kathy Wood stocks have gone up. Mega cap tech's gone up. There's a little bit of a bifurcation today. So here you have what we call high quality tech. These are uh, they have growth and they have high margin. So you have Micron, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Paycom, uh, Apple. Now they're all down one, two, three percent. 
if you look at the other side, the Kathy Wood stuff, that they have growth, but they traditionally have low margins or little or no profits at all. They're down a lot more. Most of this B stocks are down five, six or seven percent. Now, Kelly, that is what traditionally happens when people when the market is more concerned about interest rates, most of all, because those more speculative tech names get hurt a lot more in concerns about interest rates. For two weeks prior to this, essentially, the market's been more concerned about growth and buying anything that they think could withstand a growth slowdown, and that includes almost any kind of tech. Now, with this new emphasis today on interest rate concerns, you see a little bit more of Kathy Wood stuff selling off. So every day, kind of the market deals with a different challenge. Kelly, back to you. Very well said, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob Bassani. Amid all this, my next guest has two tech stocks as top picks right now. Joining me is Alan Boomer. He is the chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. These are larger uh, stocks. We are very familiar with them, Microsoft and Meta. Alan, tell me why these jump out to you and, and what your strategy is right now. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. We've got to talk a little bit more macro, and then I'll get into the micro. Macro, big picture-wise, you know, I, I am concerned about a lot in this economy. We, we have about 5 million jobs that are going unfilled, not enough workers to fill those jobs. I don't know if the Fed can really help that or not. And, and then we've got inflation. And so when I think about you know, a, a market where there's not enough workers and where prices are rising, I want to be in companies that are very, very profitable, that have a really high profit margin. And so when I look at Meta and Microsoft, these are companies that, with, that have above average uh, EBITDA margins. Where would you definitely not be? Yeah, so I would be avoiding companies on the opposite end of that spectrum, you know, companies that trade at, at high multiples that are sort of not profitable or companies with really thin margins, because you really want to be in companies today that have pricing power that are not overly reliant on labor also. Right. So again, um, Microsoft Meta feel kind of like safe places to be right now. They have a proven track record. You know, the P.E. ratios look far more appetizing than the price to sales ratio. Some of their smaller counterparts are trading at. Then I see Prologis on the list. Why this one in particular? Yeah, again, so Prologis is really a high margin business. I love the space they're operating in, which is e-commerce. E-commerce was already on the rise prior to COVID. It's continuing to be strong. And they're leasing to e-commerce players. And in order for goods to get from a warehouse to your home, they've got to shop, they've got to stop through one of these distribution centers. And that's what Prologis is in the business of, is owning the real estate that backs the e-commerce value chain. Can you explain to me, Alan, why Prologis, which let's call it, it's kind of like a tech e-commerce play, is basically at all-time highs. We're two bucks off of that right now. At a time when FedEx is 33% off its highs, the Dow Transports is down 6% in a week, had a terrible session on Friday. What, what gives? I mean, if anything, I think an e-commerce play would do even worse right now because we're supposed to be having a post-pandemic normalization hangover. Well, when you think about those transports, what's a big cost input? It's, it's gas, it's oil, it's jet fuel. Right. And those prices are through the roof. But when you talk about the real estate, they're, they're, they're not as exposed to those commodity pressures. But it, so what do you mean by that? They versus who? Sure. sure. When, I'm, when I'm talking about a prologist, which, again, is very much a, a staple in that value chain of getting a good from a manufacturer's uh, facility to the end customer, the real estate is being leased to, you know, again, some of these 
producers that have to go, they have to use warehouses. Like yeah. they can't just ship it directly to the consumer's door. It has to be reassembled. It has to, you know, be stored for a little while, even if that period is a short period of time. So again, I just think the real estate is less exposed to the commodity prices. And that's why they're doing better than the transports. But it's so fascinating because basically when you take, you know, so you take Perla, just the warehousing place, stock is almost at all time highs. You love it here. Meanwhile, the transports are doing poorly because, like you said, they have labor costs, they have fuel costs to contend with. But what what macro signal am I supposed to be taking from this? Does it tell me that, you know, e-commerce activity overall is strong and that's a good sign for the market and the economy? Because that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, look, we've got consumers that are in a really strong position on average. They've adjusted through COVID. They like to buy things online. They're working from home in some cases. In some cases, they're working in the office. But folks have a a lot of income and money to spend and and money in the bank on average. And so, again, I think e-commerce is a trend that's not going away. I think it's getting stronger. And, again, I think the real estate involved in in e-commerce is just a safe way to play it. Yeah, ProLogis versus the transports. It's giving me a lot to think about. I really appreciate it, Alan. Uh, thanks for highlighting that for us, and it's great to have you on today. Alan Boomer with great. Momentum Advisors. Steal Ahead shares the Twitter are climbing again after yesterday's 27% gain on news of Elon Musk becoming the largest shareholder. Now he's joining the board. One analyst is downgrading the stock, though, saying Musk will cast a long shadow over Twitter for the foreseeable future. He'll join me next to make his case. Plus, three buys and a bail is back, and this biotech giant is hitting a new all-time high today, and our trader calls it one of his favorite charts. We'll reveal the name. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on markets with the NASDAQ, the biggest decliner, down about 230 points, 1.6% in the 10-year, up at 255. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Elon Musk's move to buy up shares of Twitter and now to join the board has investors wondering what his next move could be with the company. User growth, monetization, new product launches, they're all issues Twitter has been facing down for years. My next guest downgraded shares of Twitter to neutral today, saying Musk could cast a long shadow for years to come over the company and the likelihood of Twitter being taken private has risen. Let's bring in Rohit Kulkarni. He's an Internet analyst at MKM Partners. Rohit, just to get this out of the way, wouldn't going private be a bullish thing or do you think it wouldn't be much above current levels? 
Uh, it would be a bullish sign. It would be a little bit above current levels, but not too high. Um, the way I would I framed my uh, upside downside scenario today was uh, probably low 60s is where I think uh, a, a go private or an upside scenario could shake out. So not too far away from where we are right now. But the downside here, uh, Twitter loses users. Uh, Russia, Europe, advertising trends are uh, soft. So uh, Q1, Q2 setup is not that bullish in my opinion. So downside is to almost $35 stock. So we think it's fair and balanced at these levels. $35 is your downside and you're warning that there were some headwinds going into this Musk news uh, coming from Russia, Ukraine, Europe and all the rest But You'd think those would be positive catalysts. There's been a lot of chatter about it. Shouldn't there be more engagement on Twitter's platform? And if not, why? Uh, even during some of the last, call it three to six quarters, Twitter has had issues holding on to users. There are new users coming onto Twitter, but in terms of holding on to users, uh, Twitter has had a steady and probably an elevated step step up in churn rates. Uh, if you look at what's happened in the last six quarters, they've added maybe five to seven million users every quarter. Um, Prior to that, during peak pandemic, they added more than 20 million. So again, the way last few quarters have trended, uh, while we see that uh, slight step up in users is possible, but we don't see that completely deviating from what we saw in the last six quarters. So, if, um, yeah. If Musk found a way to bring Trump back on the platform, would the stock be a buy? And if not, or if that's unlikely, what else would be a positive catalyst? Uh, in terms of a positive catalyst, again, uh, it, Twitter is a classic show me story in my book. Um, they need to show that uh, they can add users, they can hold on to those users, and those users can engage. Uh, we have seen many, many quarters where users have come onto the platform, and a couple quarters later, we have had negative uh, user trends. So there is a possibility that we may get excited uh, by one quarter phenomenon where users come onto the platform, but a quarter later, we actually see users go away. Hmm. So I think the engagement with what Twitter can do to hold on to those users, be it audio, be it video, uh, subscriptions, I think all those things need to come together. A cohesive consumer uh, app is what is missing at Twitter right now. Yeah, it's interesting you say that even anything that would bring new people in, they don't tend to stick around. So a lot of the excitement that I've heard is from users or, or the public in general who thinks this will move Twitter in a decentralized way that allows them uh, to see more experimentation on their platform, what some would call more free speech. I don't quite understand that. I think advertisers like the platform the way it is now with a little bit more um, curation, let's say. It's, it, it probably gives them some comfort, becomes less of a headache for them. Which way do you think this is likely to go? Um, it, this is a very hard problem for a company of uh, Twitter size and scale to solve in terms of uh, the velocity of information that they have and the likelihood of having some misinformation slip through as they are a real-time uh, engagement platform. So uh, Twitter needs to uh, walk that fine line, and it has been very hard over the last, call it, couple of years for them to uh, tread that very, very carefully. It's an expensive problem. They need to moderate content, content to a certain degree, but they also need to uh, help have uh, free speech. I feel uh, there is no clear way to solve this problem, and that's where Twitter uh, is struggling. Uh, 
uh, open source algorithms uh, have been uh, toyed around by Jack Dorsey in the past. Mm. Again, how they would play out a true web web uh, 3.0 platform, it would take months, if not years, in the making. Final question, then. It sounds like you would be more bullish if they pursued more of the monetization of the existing mm -hmm. user base. Is that right? What would you like to see in that vein? Um, Twitter has been uh, doing a lot on uh, performance marketing, direct response marketing, which is the basic uh, kind of... Uh, a gravy train, if you will, for large platforms like Facebook, Instagram, uh, even TikTok and Snap are doing a pretty good job in that. Um, last year, Analyst Day, that's been the main goal uh, and product target for Twitter. We are yet to see real traction um, uh, of uh, direct response advertising that Twitter can do and just essentially elevate their monetization game plan. Um, They're still very early. If uh, Twitter shows traction in that, I think uh, Twitter can do wonders with monetization. All right. And in the meantime, you say fair value is 49 and the stock is at 52, downgrading it to neutral from buy. Rohit, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kelly. Rohit Kulkarni from MKM Partners. We have a big news alert on the housing market. Diana Olick here with the story. Diana? Well, Kelly, the average rate on the popular 30-year fixed mortgage just crossed 5% to 5.02% according to Mortgage News Daily. That's the first time we've seen a five handle since 2013, save for one day in 2018. And it couldn't come at a worse time. We're seeing home prices, a new report up today, up 20% from a year ago, according to CoreLogic. The average rate on the 30-year fix was 3.38% just one year ago. So we're talking several hundred dollars more for the same mortgage you would have gotten a year ago, Kelly. Wow. Highest rate since 2013, mm -hmm. except for one day in 2018. <laughs> and this is a huge, I mean, these, these psychological numbers matter. Now, we may not see this filter through into actual closings for, I don't know, maybe a week or so. What's your guess? Well, you'll see them in the mortgage applications a week from now, so we'll get that data next Wednesday. But yes, it's going to affect home refinances, which have already dried up pretty majorly. And again, anyone out shopping for a home right now knows how competitive this market is, how incredibly pricey it is. And these higher rates are just going to push more people to the sidelines. And remember, we are in the heart of the spring housing market, the all-important season. Anything you would add, Diana, amid the comments from Fed officials about the balance sheet today, about the possibility of selling down the mortgage portfolio or their concern that we just heard from our guest top of the hour that because of high rates, the paydowns may slow down. And that's actually a problem for the Fed if it wants to tighten more quickly. Well, we've already seen that they're pulling out of the mortgage market, which essentially propped it up from the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if you recall, but in 2020, all I kept coming on your show saying was we've hit another record low on the 30 year fix. So now it's just going in the opposite direction. And with inflation, it's just making it so much harder for consumers out there shopping for a home. Uh, a banner afternoon uh, with the 30 year fix back above 5 percent. Diana, thank you very much. Diana Olick. Still ahead, two legacy automakers from different parts of the globe teaming up to develop lower-priced EVs. And could this be a tipping point for mass adoption? And how quickly can they put the cars into service? We'll explore that. Plus, you know the old saying, if you build it, they will come. But next, we'll look at how the worst drought in over a thousand years is wreaking havoc on home builders out west. Diana, back with that story in a moment. As we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with UNH and J&J &J leading the way. Boeing again and Salesforce, the biggest laggards, are back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 
3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's given up a 190-point gain to turn negative by about 20 points right now. It's the outperformer, though, with the S&P down half a percent, the Nasdaq down 228, and losses did accelerate after we heard some more hawkish remarks from Fed's Brainerd earlier today. The chip makers, the biggest laggards in the Nasdaq, with Marvell, Applied Materials, Qualcomm, and Lamb all down more than 5%. The SMH on pace for its worst day in nearly a month. The cloud names also getting hammered with Monday.com, Sentinel One, Asana, and Elastic all down about 8%, and that's coming off their worst quarter ever. The Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing ETF having its worst day since early March. You could say it's not liking higher rates. Starbucks sliding again after Howard Schultz suspended buybacks on his first day back as CEO. That was yesterday. Now today, Wedbush downgrading the stock to neutral, saying there's a lack of catalyst going forward to boost the stock. They cut the price target to 91 from 105. For more on that, call head over to cnbc.com pro. And Carnival is outperforming peers after reporting that last week was its busiest booking week ever. Today's move turning the stock positive year to date, though it still lags behind Royal Caribbean and Norwegian, which are up 9 and 7% respectively. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Kelly. Thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The U.S. and its allies will announce another round of sweeping sanctions against Russia tomorrow. This, according to multiple reports, the sanctions will ban all new investments in Russia, increase curbs on financial institutions, and target Russian government officials and their families personally. The former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio has pleaded not guilty to charges tied to the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. He's accused of conspiring to block Congress from certifying President Biden's election victory. The judge in the case says he will grant a request from prosecutors to, to postpone the May start date for that trial. And in Texas, a fire at a wood pallet facility is expected to burn for at least three to four days. A suspected lightning strike started the blaze as severe storms rolled into the area. Firefighters say they even had to seek cover when a suspected tornado approached. Those storms uh, that hit Texas are now threatening the southeast and some 21 million people there. Details on the latest weather damage tonight at 7 Eastern on the news with Shep Smith. Kelly, I'll see you in a half hour. Scary. Tyler, I will see you then. Thank you very much. And still ahead, three buys into bail. The buys, a biotech standout, and a couple mega cap names. The bail, well, my next guest says when the tide recedes, the weak get even weaker. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are lower for the first time in three days as earnings season is about to ramp up and investors fret about the yield curve. 
With all the confusion and sector rotation we've seen, where are the buys in this market and what's one name to stay away from? Joining me now is Ari Wald. He's managing director at Oppenheimer, and he's got three buys and a bill for us. Ari, welcome. And let's start with Regeneron, which is kind of from left field, but you say it's one of your favorite charts. It's hitting a fresh all-time high in today's trading, and the FDA just green-lighted a priority review for Dupixent for use in patients 12 and older. Tell me what you like here. Yeah, and and it fits into the yield curve story as well, the death cross of economic indicators where you could actually backtest it. Actually, markets can continue to do well, but what we found is that this isn't the time where leadership changes. You want to stick with what's working. That high momentum has outpaced low momentum uh, going back to 1978, typically when the yield curve is inverted. So where is the momentum? Where is the leadership? It's in large cap biotech, the S&P 500 biotech industry above its 200 day average on a relative basis versus the S&P for the first time since July of 2020. And I think it's all the more exceptional when you consider what's going on on the small cap side of the industry. So yeah, Regeneron, it's one of our favorite charts in the industry. Why? It's breaking through multi-year resistance going back to 2015. I think you stick with that strength. Uh, The breakout point at 65 is now support. And some of our conservative, conservative upside projections point to closer to $800. Wow. I mean, a seven year breakout is pretty notable to begin with. Could people then kind of look across large cap biotech for similar opportunities, or do you think this is a unique one? It's it's uh, the broadness across the industry as well. We're seeing it in Vertex, Amgen, uh, now Insight reversing a multi-year decline as well. So it's it's broadening out. And again, small cap biotech still has issues, but that money's got to go somewhere, and it's going into large cap. And you, it's it's thematic. Again, it's across the board in all those uh, large cap biotech companies. Yeah, and the timing makes sense to you, uh, given everything that's happening in, in terms of the macro backdrop. All right, let's move from that to Walmart. Maybe a more straightforward story, maybe not. I mean, it's already near an all-time high of 154 at a time when people are debating the strength of the consumer. You think it's poised to break even higher? Coming into its all-time high, I think you get the breakout. And this fits our market outlook uh, nicely. Uh, Reasons to be cautious going into the summer months uh, that we think low volatility stocks are warranted in the portfolio, really just given really still poor and weak internal breadth and and looming weak seasonals uh, about a month away, too. So one of those low volatility industries that are a standout to us is food and staples retailing. Why? Again, it's the broadness. The leaders in the group have been Costco, Kroger, BJ's Wholesale breaking out as well. And I think that strength broadens out to Walmart next. So it's had a nice run in recent weeks. It's rallied right into its peak going back to 2020. That's at 154. But again, with the industry tailwinds behind it, aside from a near-term pause to refresh some overbought conditions, uh, I think we're talking about a breakout looking out the next few months. Yeah. And and on that note, Amazon, you're seeing kind of a similar setup. That stock's actually up 13 percent in the past month, even though it's been a tough slog since the pandemic really set in for Amazon and it's facing unionization headwinds. So this one also acting well to you? Yeah, this strength is meaningful when you consider what's happened the, the prior 18 months. 2021, pretty much a flat year for the stock, had a uh, sold off to start the year was 18 <clears> percent. <throat> below its 200-day moving average. If you look at the last decade, it doesn't get much worse than that for Amazon, about 18% below its 200-day average. 
So we think the strength we're seeing is a meaningful turn. Uh, this is a bit more of a, a longer-term rotation idea. It could use a little bit more time, and it could get whipped around by the market over the, the near term. But I think as some of our cycle work strengthens again in the fourth quarter of this year, I think we're talking about a breakout to new highs uh, above 3800 for Amazon. Okay, so Amazon, Walmart, Regeneron, those are your buys. And the bail is a transport stock. It's already down for the fifth straight session today, FedEx. This after last week's announcement, the founder and CEO Fred Smith is stepping down June 1st. This stock is 33% off the highs area, and you think we maybe should brace for even worse? The charts are still pointed lower, Kelly. I'll tell you that. So uh, the industry, the transports industry as a whole, had a really tough um, week last week sold off and FedEx sold off with it. And this was the laggard going into that weakness. And I am of the view that when the market tide, or in this case, the industry tide recedes, the weak do get weaker. And if you look at FedEx, it's got, you look at the 200-day average, it's pointed decidedly lower. That's indicative of a bearish trend. To me, this is a stock that looks like it wants to test that March low at 199 at the least. Ari, I know you don't do this, but I got to ask because I'm going to be obsessed with Prologis for a little while. Our guest at the top of the hour pointed out here it's an e-commerce play. It's a warehouse play. This is not exposed to labor and uh, fuel costs that other transportation plays face. But does it make you feel better that that stock is doing so well to see Prologis at basically all time highs while the rest of the transport sector, notably FedEx, is lagging? I mean, could, is that a better macro signal than if all of these stocks were, were rolling over right now? What do you think? Yeah, I think this is uh, obviously this is a market where there's some haves and have nots. And, and some of these stocks are doing better than others. Uh, Prologis actually gets lumped into the REITs category. I yeah. think it has one of the better charts, even in the REIT sector, which has done well and flecting nicely from its 200 day average. So, uh, again, maybe a market uh, where you can find some pairs. Some stuff's going to do better than others. I don't know if Prologis is really the, the bellwether that I'm looking for uh, for the economy. Uh, but again, it does, and I let in with it, that the market internals just aren't there. Small caps are still having issues. And, and I think that does argue for some caution as we go into these summer months. Um, and, and especially with the rollover in transport, some look better than others. The rails are holding in there. But with the sell-off in air freight and the airlines never really making that comeback, uh, again, there are some warning and, and yellow lights out there. Yeah, jet fuel's a nightmare right now. That's going to be something, a storyline to watch in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, with ProLogis, you'd think, re- you'd think it'd be under pressure because of rising rates. So I'll give you the last word on this. Does the market feel late cycle to you right now? Or what do you think? Uh, I, I think we're about halfway through whatever you want to call it, a, a small bear market, a cyclical correction. I think there's another leg lower here if you just look at through history, uh, I, I don't think we're out of the woods. We haven't had that full washout just yet. And I think that does lurk in the summer months. It lines up with the presidential uh, cycle as well. Midterm years, historically the worst year of that four-year cycle that then strengthens again in the fourth quarter. We're following that roadmap. Uh, so when you, you add it all up there, um, uh, as the market, especially as it rallies back into resistance levels, I, I do think we are set up for a difficult summer ahead. All right. Well, I appreciate the big picture and uh, three buys and a bail in that context. Ari, thanks for all your time today. 
My pleasure. Great Gary to see you. with Oppenheimer. Still ahead, LATAM stocks, Latin America. They've been on fire lately. The ILF, their ETF, tracking the 40 biggest stocks in the region. It's up 30% so far this year, and it's not just a currency thing. But can those gains last? We'll look at some of the headwinds next. And as we head to break, natural gas jumping 7% today as traders watch a possible drop in domestic production. And a quick programming note, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm will be on Closing Bell today in a first on CNBC interview. That's around 3 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Latin America stocks seeing a good start to the year, but there are some risks to the rally. Seema Modi is here with more on that for us. Seema. Hey, Kelly. It's one of the most frequent questions JP Morgan's Latin America team is getting is when will the Brazil rally come to an end after gaining 46% in the first three months of this year? It's the intro of their note to clients today. And while they remain overtly bullish and say the rally can last, one of the risks they do highlight is the upcoming presidential election being a source of volatility. The current president Jair Bolsonaro is facing off against left-wing leader and former president Del Silva, who is currently in the lead. At first, there were concerns that Da Silva would usher in a leftist agenda, but those concerns have dissipated as he positions himself as a moderate. His running mate is also a center-right leader who is expected to bring more market-friendly policies should they win. That's not the only political event. In Mexico, President Obrador is poised to win a referendum that is expected to accelerate his policies, also seen as not so much pro-business. It's one of the reasons Capital Economics says Mexico has underperformed in recent days. Politics have been known to move markets in Latin America more so than other regions where leaders can come in and push policies at a faster rate. And that's why investors are keeping a close eye on these events, Kelly. But as you say, that it's really Brazil, the, the kind of key market to watch right now. And maybe Petrobras, an example of that. Such an important company to watch. It's Brazil's state-owned oil company, one of the largest in the world. They currently don't have a CEO who recently stepped down just days before a shareholder meeting. And the co- company is looking at uh, ushering in a a fuel subsidy as lower income consumers struggle with higher fuel prices. It's kind of an interesting dichotomy where Brazil, an exporter of oil, so yes, it's benefiting from their higher prices, but as we've seen with the lower average income amongst most households there, they're getting hit by higher fuel. Would that be a headwind for Petrobras? I mean, I assume, you know, if they have, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, right? It cuts into their margin. So that's by, that's actually something the current president is discussing with the company at this point. All right, they're hanging on still to a 14% gain year to date. Seema, thank you. We appreciate it. Still ahead, it's a tug of war between a water shortage and a housing one. We've got the latest on the rising risks from climate change. And during April, we're celebrating Financial Literacy Month and featuring some of our own CNBC contributors. Here is CNBC contributor Jim Labenthal with what financial literacy means to him. Financial literacy to me means that an investor understands not just the potential returns from an investment, but the risks. And when I say investment, it could be more than just a stock or a bond. It could be an entire investment plan, an entire asset allocation. But it's very important that an investor, through financial literacy, understands the returns and the risks that are inherent in any investment.
California just saw its driest start to the year in history. The western drought now in its third year. It's threatening every aspect of the economy, especially housing. It's a tug of war between a water shortage and a housing shortage. Diana Olick explains in her continuing series on the rising risks from climate change. On a vast swath of land in Buckeye, Arizona, just west of Phoenix, the Howard Hughes Corporation is developing one of the largest master plan communities in the nation, Douglas Ranch, flooding the desert with housing. There's a shortage on the ground right now of homes that are needed. Howard Hughes CEO David O'Reilly claims water will not be a problem. Every home will have low flow fixtures, natural desert landscaping, drip irrigation, and reclamation. 100,000 homes with big public names like Pulte, Taylor Morrison, Lennar, D.R. Horton, and Toll Brothers expected to build them. And it's just one of more than two dozen developments in the works around Phoenix, all as the West is in the midst of a 1,000-year drought. They're expecting the growth in this area to be a million people. And there isn't the water to sustain that growth, not, not with groundwater. ASU Senior Water Research Fellow Kathleen Ferris produced a documentary about the state's 1980 Groundwater Management Act. It requires developers to prove there is 100 years worth of water in the ground on which they're building. Douglas Ranch sits on the Hasayampa Aquifer, which will be its primary source of water. The problem is that with climate change, there aren't backup water supplies that you can use to save a development that's based totally on groundwater. If it loses all of its water supply, there's no water to back that up. This whole area is clearly at the crossroads of construction and climate, but the U.S. is facing one of the worst housing shortages in history. It's estimated we need over a million more homes just to meet the current demand, and the Phoenix area is one of the most active for home construction. I don't think the answer is to tell people that are looking for an affordable home in Arizona, you can't live here, go somewhere else. I think the responsible answer, the thoughtful answer, is to build them affordable homes, but to build it in a self-sustaining manner. Mark Staff is director of ASU's real estate development program at the W.P. Carey School of Business. So should Wall Street be concerned about investing in housing out in Arizona? No. Why not? Because I think that there is the understanding of this particular risk and there is sufficient evidence and facts that support the continued growth based upon what we know today. But staff concedes current development plans exacerbate that. I would say that there's a legitimate concern about our future and policymakers are very aware of this. A report just last spring from ASU's Kyle Center for Water Policy warned the amount of groundwater in the Hasayampa subbasin is considerably less than regulators estimate, and that without a change in direction, the physical groundwater supply underneath Buckeye will decrease and will not be sustainable. The bottom line is that there are places in this state, in this valley, where there are sufficient water supplies to support new growth. We don't need to go way out in the desert and pump groundwater to build but new homes. But the land is cheaper out here. Well, at some point there's a cost to that. That report also says the 100-year model for groundwater is constantly changing, especially given the changing climate. The state's Department of Water Resources is now in the process of determining if the basin does in fact have 100 years worth of water. Kelly? And are there any other options to replenish groundwater? 
Well, you know, there used to be, of course, you'd have reservoirs or potentially from the Colorado River. But because of this incredible drought we're seeing right now, those backup plans are essentially drying up. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, you know, we're going to look back and say, yeah, this package expl- outlined it perfectly. And this is how we got here. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. Well, she mentioned five big home builders involved in those developments at West. Taylor Morrison, Toll, Lennard, D.R. Holton and Pulte. Take a look at all of these stocks which are down with the market today. And all five are also coming off their worst quarter since the start of the pandemic with losses of between 20 and 30 percent as we've seen rates rise. In fact, as Diana told us earlier, the 30-year fixed mortgage this afternoon crossed above 5 percent. D.R. Horton and Lennar, the top two holdings in the ITB home construction ETF, and it is down nearly 30 percent to start the year. Still ahead, GM and Honda joining forces to develop more affordable EVs. Is this what's needed to spur mass adoption? We have the details and the price tag next. With the Dow near session lows, stay with us. Welcome back. General Motors and Honda expanding their partnership to co-develop EVs with a more affordable price tag. Phil Abo here with all the latest details. Phil? Kelly, this story is important and this agreement is important because if the auto industry is ever going to get to mass adoption of electric vehicles, the prices are going to have to come down because most of them right now cost well over $50,000. So here's what General Motors and Honda have announced. They are agreeing to co-develop several electric vehicles over the next decade. The production is likely to start in 2027, at least that's the date at this point, and they're going to be targeting popular vehicle styles. For example, think about a small crossover utility vehicle. About 13 million were sold around the world last year. If you can come in with a low-priced model at that target, it could be very successful. The agreement calls for both companies to use GM's Ultium battery technology. That will be important because it gives the scale, if you can do this around the world, to bring down battery costs. And that's the key to selling a lower-priced EV. But keep in mind that right now, these two companies, they are nowhere in the race when it comes to electric vehicles, at least electric vehicles being sold in the United States. According to Motor Intelligence, look at the first quarter sales. Tesla, we've talked about this, dominates the category. Then you've got Hyundai Kia at 9%, VW Ford. You know what two names you don't see up there? General Motors and Honda. As you take a look at shares of General Motors, keep in mind they sold just over 400 EVs in the first quarter. Honda, they didn't sell any. Why? Because their first pure electric vehicles in the U.S. will be coming out in 2024. Who's building those? General Motors. Eventually, Honda will be building its own EVs. Bottom line is this, Kelly. The holy grail, if you will, in terms of mass adoption of EVs, coming in with something that could sell for $25,000 or less. And you need scale to bring down the cost in order for that to happen. That's what this is all about. And there's a bigger opening than there once was because the price of Tesla's Model 3 has gone up substantially. And this so-called Model 2 seems years in the distance at this point, given everything else they have to produce first. Why is it that we, I mean, there are a couple of lower cost models. What, whatever happened with the Bolt? What is, there's a Nissan option that I think is, is much more affordable. Is there not? Right, so, the Leaf. Yeah, and how quickly could GM and Honda bring this new model to market? And why aren't the two I mentioned selling more rapidly? Well, first of all, this agreement calls for production to start in 2027. So we're a ways wow. from any of these 
lower price vehicles hitting the market worldwide. And they'll both be building off of the same agreement at their respective plants. And in terms of low cost options that are out there right now, yes, you've got the Nissan Leaf, the Bolt. Remember, they suspended production last year because of the issues with regard to battery fires. Look, it's going to take some time, Kelly. Bottom line is we are a long ways from seeing that $25,000 EV. Now, it could happen in the next few years if costs come down dramatically. But as of right now, we're a ways from seeing that happen. Yeah, it'd probably need to be in the works right now in order for us to have it available that quickly. Right. Phil, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Phil Lebeau with the latest. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.